I invite you to take your Bible and find Exodus chapter 34. And I invite you to switch your mind or kick your mind into high gear. And to prepare your heart. And to receive God's word. Such things are necessary whenever we encounter the living God and take God as our subject. And that's what we've been doing for the last few weeks. We're going to finish our study in Exodus chapter 34 next Sunday. So today and next Sunday in Exodus 34, we're observing in verses 6 and 7 what God says about himself. He gives us here five descriptors of his character, and we've been taking them in turn. Reading about what God says about himself, these five descriptors of his character. And so we've noticed on past Sundays his mercy. We've noticed his grace. We've noticed his patience. We've noticed his faithfulness. And today, lastly, his justice. We're talking today about the just God. Now, there's a danger in going through these descriptors so methodically and so deliberately, like we've done, taking one at a time, very methodically, very deliberately. In some ways, that's helpful to sink our teeth into each one. In some ways, it's not so helpful because we're in danger of losing sight of the big picture, taking so much time on each individual thing. So we're going to try to recover a little bit of the big picture idea today. In addition to talking about The fact that God is a just God, we're also going to take a step back by the end and consider the big picture, his character in totality. And here are the two main points. Here's the outline for today, all right? There is in God the presence of justice. That's our minute observation. There is in God the presence of justice. There is also in God the priority of mercy. That's our big picture observation. And we'll say more about what that means as we go. All right. But those are our two points. We see in God the presence of justice and also stepping back and taking a look at the big picture. We see the priority of mercy in our God. Now, let's begin the reading at verse 5. We'll read through verse 7 one more time, and we'll elaborate on those two points. And that'll be enough for today, okay? Let's stand in honor of God's word for the reading of the word. Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. That's Moses, of course. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
And here's the part we're focusing on today, brothers and sisters. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God, we pray that uh, you, by the Holy Spirit, would be our teacher today. I pray that you would protect this uh, fallible messenger from saying things that are not true and unworthy of you. And let only what is true and good settle on the hearts of your people. We come before you in faith, believing that giving our attention to these things for these minutes will be good for us. And not only that, but very, very satisfying. We really believe that. So make it so. Work not only on our minds, but on our hearts, Father. I pray for the children in the room. I pray for the youth in the room. People of every age, no matter where we are in our walk, that you would show us more than we've seen. Pray for good gifts for your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please be seated. Verse 7 shows us clearly the presence of justice in God. We see the presence of justice in God. We see in the text, we look back at verse 7 and see that he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Meaning, God does not overlook sin. The guilty are not cleared. No, rather, in reading on, the guilty are not cleared, but God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We're going to talk more about what that means in a few minutes. Right now, we're just noticing that sinners are punished for their sins. That's just. We recognize that as justice. We long for that kind of justice to be present in our everyday lives and in our society. We want crimes to be punished in accordance with their severity. And if we feel like justice has been perverted or sidestepped or denied, we get really, really angry about it. We see in God's own words that he does not clear those who are guilty before him. Sinners are punished for their sins. Now, why would he need to say that at this point? Well, to this point, God has talked a lot about his love and forgiveness towards the sinner, hasn't he? In this Revelation to Moses. Moses is there with him and God is talking about God's own character. And God has listed off all these things that we really, really like. He's talked about a lot, a lot about his mercy and his grace and how he's slow to anger and forgiving and faithful. In fact, he's talked so much about those things that it would be really easy for us to think that God does clear the guilty. 
That he simply does overlook sin and decide that sin doesn't matter. You know, God can be whoever he wants to be. Maybe he is that kind of a God that just sweeps it under the rug and forgets that it happened. And it's all love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Maybe God does clear the guilty just because he's nice. Well, if that is our notion, that notion is corrected here at the end of God's self-description. He does not clear the guilty. Sin is punished, even punished to future generations, even punished to a surprising extent. He does require payment, full payment. Maybe even more payment than we would have expected. And so, having seen this now, brothers and sisters, and carefully listened to what we've seen here in the scriptures, I'd like to ask you to consider this question. Does your view of God include a theology of real punishment for sin? I know that your view of God includes the more delightful attributes of love and mercy and forgiveness and all of those things we've been talking about. I'm asking you to consider whether your view may be inaccurate and skewed because you no longer allow him to be a just God who punishes sinners for their sins. I don't think anyone is opposed to the idea of a just God. No one's opposed to the idea of a just God. It's, it's just that we all want to reserve the right to define for ourselves what that justice should look like. We only want to call sin that which we think is sinful. And we only want God to punish in a way that we think is proper. And so we create our own idea of a just God based on what we think is fair and right and permissible human behavior. And then we say, yeah, I believe in a just God. I want a just God, but what we really want is a God who agrees with us. We shouldn't need to be reminded of these things, but let's remind ourselves of these things. To be God means God gets to define what sin is. That's part of what it means to be God. He decides. He declares. You may or may not agree with what he calls sin. We should expect that we wouldn't be in full agreement with God about these things when the matter is between an infinite good mind like his and a finite evil mind like ours. We should expect disagreement about what sin is when those are the two parties involved. We 
when there's such a disparity in ability and morality. To be God means that he gets to define sin. And to be God means that he gets to decide what fitting punishment is for those sins. You may not agree. You may not understand why God punishes in the way he does for the duration that he does. But we should expect such things when it's a matter between God and us. So the question is not so much, do you believe in a just God, as it is, are you willing to let God be God? All right, let's get very, very specific in in very real, maybe a little bit too real for, for comfort. I want, to, I want to speak very specifically to, to those of you who know, as you look back over the last 5, 10, 15 years, those of you who know that over that period of time you have softened your views on sin and hell. You have softened your views from what they used to be in order to believe in and share with others what you think is a more loving and merciful and palatable God. I know people who fit that description. You know people who fit that description. You may be in that category. You, you may have decided, yes, I used to believe that this particular thing was sinful, and it seemed clear in the scriptures, but I no longer believe that that is sinful because of the experience I've had or because of people I now know. I just don't believe that God could be opposed to what seems to be so good and fine and desirable. And if that's you, I want to say two things to you. Number one, I want to honor your desire to present a loving and merciful God to people. That's a good desire. That's the right thing to want to do. To go to the world and go to your sphere of influence and present and share a God of mercy and love. Here's the second thing I want to say. The very first sin, the very first sin and the thing that plunged the world into darkness and death was the result of a person looking at something in a garden and saying, I just don't understand how God could call sin that which appears to be so good and desirable and fine. I just don't see anything wrong with it. It looks great. And so they took and they ate and they died. God is God. 
Theology 101. God is God. He gets to decide. He gets to declare and judge and punish for sin. He is God and he is just. Now, believing things like that puts us completely out of step with everybody. Completely out of step with the world. And it feels really bad. Most of the time, it does not feel good at all. It feels really bad. And there's great temptation. And there's great pressure to modify our beliefs and our message. To try to make God more attractive. But this is what I want to impress upon you today. You can believe in and share with others our loving, merciful God without backing down one iota on biblical doctrine regarding sin and hell. You can be all about a God of love and mercy without compromising on biblical doctrine regarding sin and hell. And I'd like to take the last few minutes to tell you why that's true. We've been looking at the trees, individual trees regarding God's character, mercy, grace, patience, faithfulness. We've been looking at all the trees. Now we're going to step back and we're going to look at the forest. Okay, we're going to look at the big picture. And when we step back and we look from 30,000 feet at what God has revealed to us about himself, this is what we find. We discover the priority of mercy in God. We discover that in God, while justice and punishment for sinners is present, we find the priority of mercy. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. Let me tell you what the priority of mercy doesn't mean. And we have to be, as you know, we have to be so, so, so careful right at this point. Very, very careful and is accurate. We have to strive for pinpoint accuracy right here at this point. Let me tell you what the priority of mercy does not mean. When we say that within God there is the priority of mercy, we do not mean that God is Merciful to a greater degree than he is just. We don't mean that. No, God is completely merciful and completely just, so as to be the very definition and paragon of both. When we talk about the priority of mercy in God, we don't mean that God is more merciful than he is just. Okay? Do we have it? He's 100% merciful, 100% just at the same time. Here's what we do mean. When we talk about the priority of mercy in God, we're not talking about degree. We're talking about desire. We're not talking about degree, but desire. We're saying that God wants to be merciful. That he desires to be merciful. 
He desires to show mercy to human beings. So now we've moved from the question, what is God like? To the question, what does God like? Now we get to talk not just about the attributes that are present in God. Now we get to talk about the desires that are present in God. What he wants. What he likes. And let's have an illustration to help us understand what we're talking about. If you ask my children the question, what is your dad like? You'll probably get four or five adjectives given to you. Very general descriptors, and they'll allow you to learn some things about me, very generally. They'll give you adjectives that could be used to describe probably a lot of different people. If you ask the question, what is your dad like? But if you ask my children the question, what does your dad like? Now you really get to know me. Now we will have moved beyond adjectives that get used to describe lots of different people. And now you'll really start to know who this person is that stands behind this pulpit every week. If you ask my children the question, what is your dad, what does your dad like? You'll get answers like, well, my dad likes to laugh at his own jokes. That's what he likes. He likes, he likes to walk around the house whistling and making noise. He likes to read Moby Dick. He likes coffee and donuts and eating popcorn. He likes watching football. He likes mowing the lawn. He likes talking with mom. He likes eating M&Ms. He likes to talk to the dog like the dog is a real person. Now you know me pretty well, don't you? Because you asked the right question. What is your dad like? See, it's opened up a whole new world of knowing who this person is. Going, wow, we hired this person who talks to a dog like they're a real person? Now you know not just what I'm like. Now you know what I like. At least a partial list of just what I like to do. And for the last five weeks, we've asked the question about God. What is he like? And we got our answer well, he's merciful and gracious and patient and faithful and just. Yes, he's all those things. Now we're asking the question, yes, but what does he like? What does he love? What does he desire? What's going on in this heart of our God? What does he want to do? What's the passion inside of him? See, we're pursuing him, Christian. We're pushing in further to see who he really is. To know him more, that we might love him more. And this is what we find. There is within God the priority of mercy. Meaning, God desires to be merciful toward humans. That's what he loves. He wants to be merciful. And here are four evidences of the priority of mercy in God. So, you... You who long to take a God of love and mercy to the world. That's the right impulse. 
Here you go. Here's the evidence that that's true. Understand the the presence of justice in God, but the priority of mercy. First, First point of evidence. That there is within God the priority of mercy. Here's the first one. God names mercy first and most. That's what we see in verse 6. When God describes who he is, he's the one who puts mercy in the primary position. He says first that he's merciful. It's the very first thing. And then he elaborates on that trait. And all of these other attributes that follow in the wake of mercy just trail right behind it about grace and faithfulness and steadfast love and patience. All of those things. Just listen or look at the relative space given to God's merciful attributes compared to his judgment. That's the first evidence of the priority of mercy in God. God names mercy first and those attributes most. But that's just one thing. Here's the second evidence. This comes from verse 7 in the text that we read this morning. The generational effects of mercy. The generational effects of mercy far exceed the effects of his punishment. The generational effects of his mercy far exceed. We could probably say infinitely exceed the effects of his punishment. Or the shorthand would be the effects of his mercy exceed the effects of his punishment. Just look at the difference in generations. We noted earlier the mention of the father's children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. How those generations continue to experience the consequences of the father's sin. God punishes sin to the third and fourth generation. We could spend a lot of time talking about what that means. I just made the decision to not spend a lot of time today talking about what that means. If you're interested in digging in more, there's a parallel passage in Exodus 20 where the Ten Commandments are given where we get even more information. God fills this statement out a little bit more about punishment to future generations. All we're going to notice today is that there are generational consequences for sin and that those consequences are limited to the third and fourth generation. God limits, greatly limits the effects of his punishment. But notice in contrast, back in the first part of verse 7, something we noted a few weeks back. That God's steadfast love and faithfulness is for thousands of generations. We're just noticing today the contrast between those two statements. That the steadfast love of God, which is a mark of his mercy, continues forever to the thousandth generation. While his punishment for sin, by comparison, is very, very limited. A tiny fraction of the duration of his steadfast love. What does it all mean? It just means, friends, that when we look at God and are observing God, we're observing God who does not delight in punishment. 
We're looking and observing a God who delights in mercy. That's the second evidence of the priority of mercy in God, the generational effects. Here's the third third thing, third evidence of the priority of mercy in God. God's desire for mercy over judgment. God's desire for mercy over judgment is both proclaimed and pictured in the scriptures, all over the scriptures. His desire for mercy over judgment is proclaimed and pictured in the scriptures. I'm going to name two verses that you probably know by heart, which show us that truth so well that God desires to be merciful to humans. 1 Timothy 2.4 This is a good and pleasing thing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. See, that's his desire to be merciful. He desires all people to be saved. Second Peter 3.9 is much like it. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, so as so to count as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. See that when it says not wishing that any should perish, that speaks to what's going on in God's desires. He does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The scriptures everywhere proclaim God's desire to show mercy to people. They proclaim it and they picture it. They picture it in real-time events. Probably most vividly in the book of Jonah. Jonah was so ready for judgment to fall on Nineveh. He had his special spot all picked out. Remember a few years ago when we had the total solar eclipse and people drove hundreds of miles to get to just the right spot to watch it and get their spot all picked out to observe. That's what Jonah did. He had his special spot all picked out to go and sit there and wait to watch what God was going to do to these people. He was so eager for judgment to fall on them. He was sitting there. He was ready. He was so ready. And then he was so angry when God desired to show mercy to these people. Man was so ready for judgment and God was so eager for mercy. And boy, we may think that we have a heart for mercy. We may, we may walk around thinking that we are more merciful than God, than the God of the Bible. And the book of Jonah was written to completely refute that notion for all time. There is no one to compare with God. In terms of a desire for mercy. The scriptures proclaim it. And the scriptures picture it. We are listing off evidences. For the priority of mercy in God. And here's the last one. And it's the most significant one. And it's the most telling one. We know that there is the priority of mercy in God. Because God the Father 
gave up his son. God the Father gave up his son. His only son. In order to be merciful to human beings. God the Father gave up his son in order to be merciful to our race. God has one son, the delight of his heart, the one on whom all of his favor rests. And he gave him up. Why would he do that? Why would a father ever do that? What could prompt such a self-giving? What, what impulse in God could possibly be greater than that impulse to cling to a beloved son? I would not give up my sons and daughters for anything. What is it in God? What is in his heart? Who is he? What does he love? What does he love so much that he would give up his only son? The beloved apostle tells us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. To think about this, to judge us and punish us would have cost God nothing. To judge us and punish us for our sins would have cost him nothing. To show us mercy cost him an infinite price. And he paid it so he could be the merciful God. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. When we say God gave up his son for us, we understand that that means that he took our collective sins and laid them all upon his son, who had no sin, on the cross, and exacted from that perfect, beloved son the full price of justice. It's just at that point that we see what the justice of God means. He required full payment. For sins. It's just that it was exacted from Jesus, not from you. So that God's mercy could be poured out on us. So, there are the four evidences. There is within God the priority of mercy. It's not a matter of degree but a matter of desire. 
He desires to be the mercy, full, mercy, loving God. And that's who we get to represent in this world. That's who we get to take to the world. Listen, we get to take to the world the God who is even more merciful than we would like him to be. God's people throughout history have always been angry with God, but not because of his judgments. God's people have always been angry when God shows up because he's more merciful than we want him to be. Happened with Jonah. Happened with the Pharisees. It happens with us still. God is even more merciful than we want him to be. That's who he is. This is our God. He does not need to have his character defended by us. He has demonstrated his character to us in Christ crucified for sinners. He is the just God and he loves mercy. Now, there's a very, very important point of application that's left here in this passage. It's so important that we're going to save it for next week. We're going to give it a sermon all of itself. Because we read in verse 8 that after seeing this God who we've been learning about, Moses bows himself down to the earth and he worships. And we're going to come back next week, if you can, and just ask ourselves the question, having seen this God, are we worshiping? Let's pray. Father, we honor you and we love you for who you are, full of justice and full of mercy. May we worship at your feet this life you have given us as we look forward to a forever worship in your presence. I thank you for giving us um, this beautiful day and time to devote to considering these things. And I pray your blessing on your people as they go and rejoice in who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.